Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Living Room Logic Welcome back to Season 2 of Living Room Logic. This episode, Aiden has a banging interview with US Army Sergeant Emmett Long, a weapons specialist who guides us through the evolution of guns over time and why they are so effective and dangerous today. Fall in line by following us or subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Living Room Logic to join our logical following. This season is supported by FameLab Ireland. Okay, welcome back everyone to another episode of Living Room Logic. So, this week we wanted to discuss a technology that's a lot like Marmite because typically it's either loved or it's hated but regardless of that, this technology has changed the way that wars are fought. And ultimately, there's a lot of scientific research that has made this happen. Today, we talk about guns. But since my experience with guns doesn't go much past those of shooting water, I'm joined here today by someone who has had extensive professional weapons training, US Army Sergeant Emmett Long. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Aiden. It's very good to be here. I spent, I was a soldier 24-7, 365 days a year for, you know, five, almost five years. I've moved to a reserve capacity for the past two years, which is two weeks a year and one weekend a month. Okay. So it's like army light. You know the business and you've been in it for a decent while. For seven years, yeah. In total, almost seven years. Wow. Amazing. And so... You know, since we're talking about guns and the technology of guns yeah. in this episode, can you tell us a bit about your experience with weapons, um, having been in the army for so long? Of course, yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I do have extensive, you know, first-hand experience with pretty much every single weapon system that a U.S. Army rifle platoon will experience. Um, yeah. I was an airborne infantryman, which essentially means that I jumped out of an airplane, armed to the teeth, and I go and, you know, take care of the issue that we're having with the bad guys or who, whoever it would be. And so what, what sort of weapons are we talking? Uh, M4 carbines. We're talking about 240 Bravo medium machine guns. We're talking M249 saws. If you've ever played Call of Duty, most of these weapons are going to be in there. The AT4 rocket launcher, the um, wow. Carl Gustav recoilless rifle, which is essentially an upgraded version of the bazooka. Um, okay. I'm not sure if I already mentioned it, but it was, it's the M2 50 caliber machine gun, which mm -hmm. has gone through multiple variations, but it is essentially the same weapon that John Moses Browning invented back in the early 1900s. Um, and it has gone through a couple of changes, but it's still essentially the same gun that was used a hundred years ago. So you're saying you're not an expert, but you've shot a couple of guns. I, I have shot quite a few guns. Yes, <laughs> I've shot quite a few. Yeah. And we can talk about all that as we go on. But then the kind of interesting thing 
is Emmett, you know, you're not only are you a sergeant in the US Army, but you also have a background in history and you have a, a passion for history, don't you? I do. I have I've I'm very very passionate about history. I've I've kind of had it for as long as I can remember. Uh, I graduated back in 2014 from NUIG with a Bachelor of Arts degree uh, with a focus on history, sociology and political science. I feel like we can learn a lot by looking to the past and kind of avoid mm. the mistakes that they have made in the past by just reading reading some reading a couple of books. History is such an all-encompassing subject that there's just so much that you can read and I've just always been fascinated, you know, being able to be a part of the United States army, you know, something that is just drenched in history was something yeah. that I always wanted to to do. So, since you're a history buff as well, Emmett, I want to ask you about guns and and where guns started. Like, what was the start of kind of handheld guns and and gunpowder and stuff like that? Like, what the hell is gunpowder? Can you tell us about some of that stuff? Well, gunpowder itself is quite a basic chemical compound. Um, It's Mm -hmm. uh, essentially three ingredients, saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal Mm -hmm. in a certain mixture. And with that certain mixture, you add heat, like flame or a hot iron or a burning wick, anything like that. Once that fire, that heat is exposed to this compound, it goes up in flames. It creates a flash. And an explosion. And an explosion, exactly. So the origins of gunpowder has kind of been lost to history. A lot of people Mm -hmm. tend to agree that it came from China or the Far East because Mm -hmm. they liked to experiment uh, with fireworks. And they would do it at special occasions. And then, of course, the earliest recorded writings of gunpowder appearing in Europe, in Western Europe, at least, uh, is around 1260. And it was Mm -hmm. uh, in a catalogue written by a Franciscan friar. His name was Roger Bacon. Okay. And he wrote about this black flammable powder, which modern historians interpret he was talking about gunpowder. Um. But then, of course, you have to fast forward then into the 14th century when it really, truly started to become weaponized, um, Mm. uh, unfortunately. And they started to put it into hand cannons. And this was one of the original firearms as as far as handheld firearms are concerned. To say it's as intricate as modern firearms is completely false. Um, But they were cast iron or cast bronze uh, tubes that had an opening on one side and a, and a closed end, obviously, like you would want, so that you can build up pressure. Mm-hmm. It had a little hole at the top of it, which is called a flash hole, strapped down onto a wooden handle, a long wooden handle. Some of them were uh, about a foot and a half to three foot in length. And then they would stick gunpowder at the back of the barrel. Then they would load stones, metal fragments, or even entire you know metal Jesus. balls into this thing. Yeah. Right? They would have a hot iron in one hand, and they would hold this really cumbersome and heavy thing and point it at the enemy's block that was in front of them, put Mm -hmm. the hot iron onto the flash pan where they had some of the black powder. That black powder would catch fire, chase itself down into the chamber of the gun itself, explode and sending, depending on what you fired, if you fired stones and metal fragments, it turned into a giant shotgun. If you fired Whoa. actual, a solid shot, then it was mm. a, essentially a handheld cannon. But that's why they called it the hand cannon, because they had Very cannons cool. 
But they were like, how can we make this? Can infantry handle this thing? Can they? And the a lot of the writings at that time said that they couldn't. Um, it was actually just as dangerous for the users as it was for the people in front of it. And this was, you know, in the 14th century. And then, of course, you move on then into, you know, the 15th century. And you start seeing a lot more uh, tinkering with it. And then mm. the Germans came up with an idea of sticking it on a hook. So it was essentially they would stick a stake in the ground and the stake had a U at the very top of it. And it was made of yeah. metal. And they would oh. stick the hand cannon on it so that they could mm -hmm. brace it. So it made mm -hmm. it more accurate. And then, of course, mm -hmm. they started saying, well, what if we made it able to be more comfortable to be fired from the shoulder? What if we introduced a trigger that instead of me having to have one hand with a hot iron and the other hand holding the gun, making it less accurate, what if I was mm -hmm. to combine it all into one thing so that the soldier who is using this gun can aim and look? And when he pulls the trigger, the trigger actually puts a match on top of the black powder, causing the explosion and then causing the shot. And this mm -hmm. was the introduction of the harkabusse, which essentially means hook. And then that became arquebus. And that's when we had the original arquebuses, which was a smooth bore, shoulder fired firearm, which was shot from a hook because it was quite heavy and cumbersome. Yeah. It was a matchlock, which meant that its source of ignition was from a length of rope when the trigger was pulled, a cock, which the match was routed through, would fall forward into a flash pan, which is where the black powder on the outside was held. Mm -hmm. Once this match, which was burning and infused with saltpeter so that it would burn consistently, once that caught fire, it chased it into the chamber of the gun, igniting the rest of the black powder inside of the gun, sending the shot flying out of the barrel. There were multiple drawbacks with an arquebus. It was mm -hmm. very, very cumbersome. It took forever to reload. And it was prone to misfires. If your okay. powder got wet, the gun wouldn't work. If your match got wet, the gun wouldn't work. If there were still hot embers on your flash pan, you could have a, pr a, a accidental discharge. If there were still hot embers inside of the barrel, as soon as you stick more black powder down there, it's going to explode again. And oh you're going to be God. like, just so dangerous. Left without eyebrows or a face. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, it was better than the hand cannon, but it wasn't truly, you know, reliable. Mm -hmm. That's why when they would field arquebusiers, they would be fielded en masse and you would have dozens or hundreds if you could. Mm -hmm. And when the arquebus became popular, but again, between the 14th to the 17th centuries, mm -hmm. plate armor went away. Archers and crossbowmen disappeared. Knights, mounted knights, they went away because wow. why would you spend 20, 30 years training someone in the art of hand-to-hand -hand combat when some Yahoo with a with a gun who's only been trained for 60 days on how to use it can take him out? Why bother going to that investment? This is an incredibly risky thing an arquebusier is, but the risk pays off. Exactly. When you start fielding more of them, excuse the pun, you get more bang for your buck because... Like with all warfare, if I can kill you at mm. 100 paces or 150 paces before you come at me with your sword in your plate armor, no matter how deadly that soldier is at hand-to-hand, -hand, if he doesn't have a chance to get hand-to-hand -hand with me, then there you go. You've, you've solved that problem. 
Wow. Another thing on top of them being not very reliable and cumbersome, and in, they were also very inaccurate because they use smooth bore and they use balls. Mm -hmm. And you have a thing called the Magnus effect whenever you fire a perfectly rounded ball. It's essentially as soon as it leaves the barrel, outside forces are going to start acting on it, making it spin out of control, going in unpredictable wow. patterns. So a lot of writers at the time and a lot of army drill manuals that they had back then would say that it's inaccurate outside of 100 paces. Okay. So they would wait until the enemy army is within 100 paces and then they would start hitting them with volleys of fire. Which is pretty damn close. It is. It is very, very close. But again, it was better than an archer. It was better than a crossbowman because an archer can only generate anywhere from about 130 to 150 joules of energy, which is completely useless against plate armor. A crossbow okay. can only get about 200 joules. Arquebuses can generate up to 3,100 joules of energy. Yeah, just tens of times more. And pistols, so handheld pistols, could generate 1,000. So that's wow. even a handheld pistol is 10 times stronger than a man who's been trained 20 years with a longbow. Wow. So the arquebus really did change, and the matchlock really did change how... Wars were fought, and it was on the battlefield for 200 years. So those were the earliest firearms, and, and then that's the arquebus was truly when armies began to see the significance, nations began to see how game-changing gunpowder weapons were. They were used at the Battle of Pavia, which mm -hmm. was the Holy Roman Empire versus various cities within Italy, particularly the Milanese. They were mm -hmm. used extensively throughout most major conflicts in you know between the 14th to the 17th centuries you mm -hmm. know whoever could field the most gunners and pikemen generally speaking would win the day wow that's incredible and so i guess my next question is what guns came after these earliest arquebuses and matchlocks you know like when were guns really kicked into the next gear in terms of mass production like I said, you know, arquebuses were popular on European battlefields. They were mm. even used, like matchlocks and arquebuses were even used in Japan. They were, you know, used by samurai. They were used by a lot of people, the, the, the Hindus in the Middle East. They would use these arquebuses because, of course, they would trade with the Europeans. And mm. they became worldwide firearms. Now, you have to move into the uh, later 17th century early 18th century to start seeing a new development as far as ignition source for the gun. Because one okay. thing that the matchlock created was a delay between me pulling the trigger and the shot coming out of the barrel. A lot can happen in one or two seconds of me pulling the trigger. One thing that you have in, in, in combat and real life scenarios is your target is going to move. It's mm. not going to stand still and wait for you to shoot it. So mm. the arquebus here would pull the trigger and he would look he could flinch, his target could move, a lot of things could happen, he could fall over, a, a gust could grab the barrel of his gun, and then his shot is going to go off wildly off-center. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they created a quicker ignition source, which was the flintlock. And a flintlock mm. got rid of the match, and it introduced a piece of stone. And that piece of stone was put on a thing called a cock. And they called mm. it that because it was shaped like a rooster. Okay. And they would put the flint inside of the cock's mouth. Okay, excuse mm -hmm. me. Let's, you know, be all be adults here. <laughs> put, <laughs> of course. They put this piece of, piece of flint in the cock's mouth mm -hmm. and they had a flash pan. 
but now the flash pan was actually covered. So it had a flash pan cover because they were started to think and they're like, okay, well, we don't want our black powder to fall out if I move my gun a certain way. Yeah. So it would be covered. So what the gunner would do is he would, he would open up his flash pan, put some black powder in the flash pan, cover that flash pan up. Next thing he would do was go ahead and half cock his weapon, put the musket on the ground, pour some black powder in, put Mm -hmm. in a ball, a lead ball, put that into the musket, right? Pull out a ramrod. He would tamp that down until it was nice and tight in there. Mm -hmm. He would then put the ramrod away. He would bring up the firearm, bring it to full cock, which meant that now the cock is all the way back as far as it can go and it's held under spring tension. He would then bring it up to his shoulder. He would go ahead and aim, pull the trigger. As soon as he pulls the trigger, that cock comes flying forward with the flint in its mouth. That flint hits the pan cover, knocking it out of the way, but it also creates sparks. Those sparks Mm. jump into the black powder, which is incredibly flammable, causes a flash in the pan, which chases it into the flash hole on the gun, igniting the powder in the chamber and sending that musket ball flying out of the barrel. That's it. Very basic, drum down way. Some countries would do certain things differently, but that is a general way of reloading a musket. And then they would rinse and repeat. And that's how they would do it. Is this where the musket began? And like, were muskets used on a huge scale at the start? After a certain point in history, everyone got rid of matchlocks and started using muskets because they were far more reliable. They were Mm -hmm. easier to use. They were more accurate. They were less cumbersome. They were a lot lighter. Uh, Sure, they were long as hell, but they were a lot lighter than the arquebus. Of course. And the matchlock. It eventually took over, and then you start seeing them. Like, for anyone who doesn't know what a musket is, go ahead and watch Pirates of the Caribbean. Those are going to be, you know, muskets. And you also had flintlock pistols. So you had flintlock muskets and flintlock pistols. It's got a, it's got a trigger. You click it and it smacks it. Exactly, and it, makes it a smacks poof. it. Makes a makes a lot yeah. of smoke, a lot of noise, and it looks really really cool. Exactly, right? Well, another thing that the flintlock didn't address was reloading. It still took forever to reload. So mm. soldiers would carry with them their musket, and they would some of them, if they could afford it, would have a flintlock pistol with them. If they could mm. afford another one, guess what they did. They would load that flintlock pistol, they would take it with them, they would have a second flintlock pistol, they'd take it with them, and they would go ahead and they'd have them because reloading this thing took anywhere from 15 to 20 seconds. At the at the height of the musket's popularity, the British line infantrymen, the most average line infantrymen, could shoot four rounds a minute for a musket. And that was like, whoa, that's a machine yeah, gun. You know what I that mean? Like that incredible. Is, that is fast. For them, right? <laughs> so cool. So fast. Like, fastest so man slow. alive. <laughs> but, and that's... He's just and that's, like, come on! Yeah, exactly. And you've got, like, cavalry charging at you, and you're just there like... <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> but even then, they were prone to misfires, hang fires. If they got wet, it was still useless. A lot of armies moving into the 18th century, even into the 19th century, wouldn't fight if it was raining, because their guns wouldn't work. Their that cannons wouldn't fire, their guns wouldn't fire... And they weren't going to like, oh, yeah, let's charge at them with swords because they they don't use them anymore. They don't know how to use the sword. Exactly. Properly. They're not trained like they're trained in bayoneting, mm. but they're not trained in sword fighting anymore. And their general who put down his plate armor 20 years ago is just like, come on, men. <laughs> yeah. Just and, they're like, 
and they're like, uh, so- sorry there, General, uh, my gun doesn't work, so you, you, you fire on ahead there, we'll be right behind you, <laughs> two miles behind you. <laughs> that is incredible. Scrounge break! Are you more interested in flicking through pics of airbrushed models on Instagram than listening to two millennials nerding out about science? Us too! But why don't you half your favourite OnlyFans donation and give that to us at patreon.com forward slash livingroomlogic. Make science sexy again. We see muskets in so many movies and and when I think of a musket, I think of like the Napoleonic Wars and stuff. Like, yeah. were, were muskets a benefit to Napoleon? So every major European power around the time of Napoleon were using muskets. Yeah. Some of them were even using rifles. And what a rifle has, as opposed to a musket, a musket is smooth bore. And that means that it is completely smooth on the inside of the barrel. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to get rid of the Magnus effect, which is varying areas of pressure above and beneath the bullet as it travels through the air, they created a solution to the problem was creating grooves that circled through the barrel right up until the muzzle of the gun. So right up until the bullet or the projectile left the weapon itself and it spun it clockwise. And what that does is as it travels through the air, it creates spin stabilization, allowing the bullet to travel straighter and farther. So rifled barrels began to really start to be used on European battlefields right around the beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century, beginning of the uh, 19th century, definitely. And then as, you know, and now we're picking up steam. Now we're in the 19th century. Now brass is easier to, to find and manufacture. Now flint is becoming, you know, something that you can find on the floor somewhere. All of these materials are becoming easier to find. Therefore, weapons are easy to manufacture. And now we're having a lot of ingenuity. We have time to sit down and actually research these things. Right around now, the 19th century is when warfare was very prevalent and colonialism was very prevalent. So any Mm -hmm. superpower who was anyone needed a powerful army and a powerful navy. And one of the things that was popular in armies at the time was moving away from matches and flint and now moving to a more sustainable source of ignition called a percussion cap and a percussion Mm. cap is a very very small top hat shaped thing about the size of your pinky nail and it was made of brass and it had black powder inside of it that black powder was sealed into this cap with varnish it was placed on top of a nipple which was on the the gun itself Mm -hmm. and instead of the hammer having the source of ignition it now just was a hammer it was a thing which would fly forward and crush the percussion cap and that change of of pressure that heat generated by that hit would cause the black powder to explode and then it would cause the gun to go off and this became far more reliable and the other thing is that it became more weather resistant because you no longer had exposed powder right around the time of the flintlock became more and more popular They also started to experiment with cartridges. Mm -hmm. The original cartridges were made of paper. Okay. The soldier would, and it was divided into certain places. So they would rip open a piece of paper. They would pour that amount of powder pre-measured into the flash pan. They would close up their flash pan. They would then get the rest of the paper, which had gunpowder at the top, 
and the ball at the bottom, they would mm -hmm. pour that in and then they would ram that whole cartridge home to create yeah. a seal mm. so that no gases are going to be wasted when the gun goes off. Okay. Mm -hmm. Over the years, they started to make these cartridges better right up until the 1820s and 1830s when, like I said, brass became more available and cheaper. They started to fully encase these cartridges in brass. And that's whenever we think of a bullet, that's what we think of now. That's oh, truly when it became cool. modern. It was okay. around the 1820s, 1830s. You now have the source of ignition on the back of the cartridge itself. It's called mm. a primer. And this is a very small, minute amount of black powder. But as soon as the hammer hits that, it causes an explosion and it start, causes the fire to kick into the cartridge, which causes the black powder to ignite, sending the bullet, which is sitting on top of the cartridge, flying out the barrel. Now comes the question, how can we fire quicker? More quicklier, mm -hmm. as we say in the army. How can we <laughs> fire more quicklier? And a lot of gun engineers tried to tackle that problem. Some of them created more barrels. It's called the Duckfoot Pistol, if you ever want to have a look at it. Um, oh. It had multiple barrels with powder and shot in each one. Yeah. The person would pull the trigger and the hammer would fall and it would ignite one barrel and then you could line it up so that it could fire out of multiple barrels. But then the one thing that seemed to become more popular as far as hand guns are concerned was a revolver and that is different from having multiple barrels is that it had multiple cylinders and it would yeah. revolve clockwise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it would have a bullet or shot and powder or percussion cap in it you would pull the trigger which would cause the hammer to fall which would either hit the percussion cap or a primer sending the projectile flying out of the barrel and then when you pull the hammer back to have a subsequent shot it would automatically rotate the cylinder perfectly so that the next bullet is in line with the barrel and ready to fire again. Six shooters or as many shots as how many cylinders you had is how many shots you could get off and then you would have to reload it, right? Amazing. So you messed around with revolvers. Colt, you know, had his revolver. It was very popular during the Mexican-American War. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a little bit more tinkering. And then, lo and behold, you have the Colt Peacemaker, which was you know, a cowboy gun. If you've ever seen any Western ever, guarantee someone has a peacemaker somewhere. Okay. And it's a revolver. You pull the hammer back and you, you know, and some of them, they'll shoot it from the hip so they can get that fan fire going. But that's, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, like, they smack the gun yeah, repeatedly. They smack. So what they're doing is in order to increase their fire rate, they're fanning the hammer and they're pulling the trigger. So yeah. all the trigger does is there's a little, there's a little sear on it which when the trigger is pulled back, it's resting on. All the mm. trigger does is hold that hammer back. But if you keep From the trigger smacking. held down, it has nowhere to go. It has nowhere to rest. So the hammer's just going to fly forward freely. And it's going to wow. keep going until you run out of ammunition. So it can like get real fast, you know, get some fancy shooting going. <laughs> that's Calm down, cool. Clint. But <laughs> that's what it came down to. And then you had repeaters for rifles. And what a repeater does is that it's got an ammunition tube on it. Mm -hmm. You put rounds into that tube. You close up your tube. If you've ever watched Terminator 2, or again, if you've ever watched any Westerns ever, you'll see them have a lever. Mm -hmm. And you press it forward and away from you, and it opens mm -hmm. up the action of the weapon. Once the action is open, 
they bring the lever back up towards the gun, towards the buttstock, and the bolt pinches that round that's in the magazine, or the, the magazine tube underneath the weapon, and it pushes it into the chamber, and then it rotates and locks. And now that Very bullet true. is locked in place. You pull the trigger, it shoots the, the bullet, you then put the lever out in front of you, and it gets a very, very, you know, satisfying and it's, <laughs> it's, and then it reloads it. But what this meant for armies is that now, instead of being able to shoot four rounds a minute, you could shoot 40 or 50 or 60. Wow. It's crazy. In a minute. Such a difference, like. Huge difference. And essentially, that is what an army is looking for. It's trying to make every individual soldier more deadly than mm. the person you're fighting and they did they did particularly in the uh in the u.s civil war so during the u.s civil war you saw a hodgepodge of firearms being used um you know a whole host of weapons were being used and of course the because of the improvements on accuracy fire rate reliability of the firearm including training of the soldiers like these all made the weapons used at that time very, very deadly. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, during uh, one of the opening battles of the U.S. Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run, or the first Battle of Manassas, as it's known by the Confederates, mm -hmm. you actually had people, normal civilians, you know, higher class civilians, getting in their horse and cart, taking the family out for a day because they heard that the Union Army was going to be having a fight with the Confederates. That's crazy. In the area. They actually hopped in the horse and cart, drove down to Manassas, drove down to Virginia, because Washington, D.C. isn't that far from where it wow. happened. And they watched the battle from a couple of miles away. And they watched war happen in front of them. Oh, my God. But, of course, the Union lost that battle. So now you have the Union in a full retreat, running towards the civilians. The civilians were absolutely appalled at what they saw. And not only were normal, you know, civilians there, but reporters were there, senators were there, congressmen and women, they were appalled at what they saw. Um, because it was their first taste of, of war for a lot of them. You know, because they didn't have TV or radio. They didn't have anything that we have. And they weren't necessarily as jaded as we are as a society now to violence. Mm -hmm. And this was like their first taste. And they always heard that war was something to be proud of, that war was something beautiful and heroic and, you know, made men out of boys and all this stuff and you do it for king and country and whatever. But these people experiencing it firsthand, they were disgusted and appalled mm -hmm. by it. They finally saw the reality of it. Yeah, they finally saw the realities of war and what these weapons had created, which was a killing field. Wow. And you had multiple slaughters during the U.S. Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of men died. Mm -hmm. War is hell and war is yeah. awful. And they weren't, you, they, they weren't ready for it. So when the civilians started to run away, the roads became choked. Ambulances, which were coming in to pick up the Union wounded, they weren't able to either get in or get out because the civilians were clogging up the road. And you had congressmen and, and senators who were grabbing rifles and pointing them at retreating Union soldiers saying, get back in line and go and fight those Rebs. It was complete oh chaos. Goodness complete wow. chaos you even had people who were selling food like get your corn dogs it was like going to watch a rugby mm. match or going to watch but a football game but little did they know that the guns that had been produced up until now 
are bloody effective. They were incredibly effective. They did very well. And so you said yourself that, you know, Murphy's Law starts to kick in and the technology of weapons starts to skyrocket on this exponential trajectory. Yeah. And it really kind of brings us right up until modern weapons. And I'm really interested to ask you about modern weapons and and your your personal experience using them like what makes modern guns so effective and and has this changed the way wars are fought today i have to speak about this in the context of history right so world war one saw far more accurate artillery being used saw the introduction of airplanes in Mm -hmm. combat it saw the implementation of machine guns of bolt action rifles self-loading rifles um you know you had all of these new fangled weapons which allowed soldiers to have a much higher rate of fire even on an individual basis like a bolt action completely outclasses anything that had come Mm -hmm. before but the problem was is that the germans had them too everyone had them and of course machine guns everyone had those too artillery everyone had those too one thing that the british implemented in 1916 was the tank but before long they were not very useful you know what i mean so Moving forward then into World War II, you know, you start seeing war become decentralized and it's no longer, you know, up to the generals and the lieutenants. It's, it's actually the soldiers on the ground, the, the, the squad leader. Everybody knows the battle plan. Everybody knows their objective. Everybody knows where they're supposed to be going. Everybody is in on the plan. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, in like the colonial times, like during the American War of Independence, the French Revolution, Napoleonic era... Only really the commanders knew what was going on. But then, of course, during the First World War, they said, this is stupid. What if the general gets killed? Because now the weapons are actually so much more accurate that I can see what the general is wearing because their uniforms back then were incredibly ornate. And if you were a general, you were wearing the biggest hat. You had the biggest epaulets on your shoulder. Mm. You had ribbons and gold and everything. And you stuck out like a sore (laughs) thumb. Oh, my God. Me as a dude with a rifle... As a as a sniper, I can go ahead and I can pick you out, and I'm like, right, lads, I'm going to kill that fella. And then and then the battle. And you kill over. him. Exactly. You've cut the head off the snake, mm-hmm. and now the entire army has no clue what it's doing. And when you have a directionless army, you have chaos, and you can win just by shooting one man, killing one man, or two, or three. So you actually see a shift from command, and they're saying, you know what, the soldiers need to know what we're mm-hmm. doing, and you see that happen in the First World War. You see that happen in the Second World War. You see it happen in Korea, Vietnam, and every conflict since. Mm -hmm. Whenever we went into a mission, we knew exactly where we were supposed to be. We knew exactly what we were supposed Mm -hmm. to do. We knew exactly how long we were going to be there for. We knew everything. Going into this plan, everybody knew the plan. I failed to mention at the beginning, I I served a tour of duty over in Afghanistan from 2017 to 2018. Mm -hmm. Whenever we did anything, it was planned. Every single thing was planned. Yeah. You wouldn't go and take a piss without a plan. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, you you know, that that's one thing that made armies more successful. Not just the technology, but the training and the way how people saw a battlefield. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the 20th century, weapons design took off. It absolutely took off at an exponential rate that had never been seen in his, in human history right up until that mm-hmm. time. I mean, even in World War II, you had the nuclear bomb. 
they were taking a hard look at absolutely everything and trying to make it mm -hmm. better. Nowadays, the M4, which is the weapon that I used, has a rate of fire between 700 to 950 rounds a minute, mm. and it's accurate up to 600 meters. Yeah. Like, that's pretty incredible. You know, put that up against your man with the, with the matchlock or the arquebus. So we always used to debate this in the army. Like, if we were ever to be transported back in time, could, we take, could an infantry platoon take over the world? I absolutely believe they yeah. could. An infantry platoon armed with just bare basic what they would go to war with, we could probably destroy an entire army of men. Yeah. Just 50 guys armed with machine guns, automatic rifles, grenades, rocket launchers, mortars, all of that. Take away our support, but keep give us our basic weapons, we could easily take out an entire army. I mean, every single soldier, when we were over in Afghanistan, if you're a rifleman, you carry 210 rounds mm -hmm. on you. You carried seven magazines. Yeah. Making you incredibly effective. And the machine guns, our machine guns, the 240 Bravo, we would carry 1,500 rounds with that sucker. And a 240, a, a 249 gunner would carry about 700 or 1,000 rounds. That's a lot of firepower. And so for one of, the, one of the last questions I want to ask you, Emmett, you talked about this decentralization of warfare. And can yeah. you maybe give us an example, if you're comfortable with it? If you're not, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. But uh, if you are comfortable with it, could you give us an example of when you really felt like it was decentralized um, in your own experience in Afghanistan? Yeah, so... When we deployed to Afghanistan, Battalion went to a place called Bagram. And we were with Battalion for a little bit. And then we got forward stationed to a place called Kunduz. And we hung out in Kunduz for about two or three months. And when we were in Kunduz, we were completely isolated. We were, we were with the Germans. We were, you know, running safety missions and, you know, doing security and hanging out, waiting for, you know certain special people to need our help and things okay. like that but we were essentially on our own you know we were out there with the germans we would get supplies in absolutely they would be driven in by afghans on, in trucks but we were essentially on our own and we would relay to battalion and let them know what we're doing and battalion would say hey we need you to do this we need you to do that but for the most part it was just us honest to god like we were just a company with you know three platoons in the headquarters mm -hmm. platoon what like 150 people out in the middle of, out in the middle of nowhere just waiting <laughs> but but and and were there times where certain things happened to one platoon and yeah our mission would rotate so bravo company's mission we were tasked with staying in kunduz because a couple of years prior the city the entire city of kunduz had fallen to the taliban wow because they didn't have enough support from the americans so we were in kunduz waiting for the taliban to try and do what they'd done a year prior two years prior again mm -hmm. and we were the reaction force we were going to be the the hammer mm -hmm. if they ever tried to act up mm -hmm. right so we were waiting there waiting for that meanwhile charlie company who was in nangahar which is uh near jalalabad in afghanistan in the hindu kush mountains they were getting stuck into the taliban every day they were taking accurate fires, they were taking RPGs, they were taking all sorts of combat. Like, they were actively engaging the Taliban day and night. Those two places, how they're, they're hundreds of miles apart. Us and Bravo Company, we were almost in the northeastern border of Afghanistan doing our own mission. Meanwhile, a couple hundred, you know, miles south, 
in the Hindu Kush mountains, Charlie Company was fighting the Taliban. In Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Alpha Company was doing their own mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Delta Company was f- floating in between every single company and they would move us around. But battalion stayed at Bagram. The companies moved around. Very cool. And we were totally decentralized from them. Mm-hmm. Like we would do our own thing. You know what I mean? They would give us the overarching mission and the overarching objective. But we were left to plan and to how, how to, you know, make the, the objective happen. How to, you know, capture our objectives and how to make the mission a success. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it all comes down to uh, competency and the ability of your soldiers to make that kind of independence actually work. Mm-hmm. This is the current state of warfare. It's decentralized. You have a platoon here and a platoon there, hundreds of miles. You apart. no longer have massive blocks mm-hmm. of men, like ten thousand, fifteen thousand men in the field at once, just trading shots and cannon fire and cavalry charges. You don't have that anymore. You now have, you know, thirty, forty, fifty guys taking over certain strategic areas, maneuvering on each other, and that's that's a that's a battle. You know what I mean? 40 or 50 people against 40 or 50 people. Wow. Wow. And you'll have complex, yeah. And it's no longer like you're not going to field massive armies and have at each other. You can't do that. Because that's just a huge target for aircraft. You know, but you can't even stay in a building for long if you're fighting against a near peer because they've got tanks. They've got aircraft. They can bomb you into oblivion. They can call in close air support and take out that building. They can even call in the tanks and start sending, you know, depleted uranium 105 shells into your lap. Oh, my God. There are artillery guns that we use, howitzers, that are guided by satellites that have smart munitions. Oh, my God. And it can hone in on a target two miles away. That's very scary. (laughs) And most tanks nowadays have gyroscopes in their turrets so it doesn't matter what kind of terrain they're going over their gun is going to stay exactly what they're pointing at regardless of the terrain yeah and so that brings me on to the next and actually my final question for you Emmett what do you think is the future of warfare now that it's decentralized and do you think it might differ from the way that wars are fought today you know in spite of what we see on the news and reading the newspapers and online and you know we actually live in one of the most peaceful times in human history Mm -hmm. because there used to be a time where major powers were at war with each other for years and years and years you know we're never going to see massive blocks fighting against each other ever again Mm -hmm. i feel like because weapons have gotten so darn good and so and training has gotten so darn good our communications have gotten so darn good our vehicles, everything focused around war has gotten so darn good that now it's terrifying for people to think if we ever go to war because if we ever fight the Russians, guess what? They have close air support too. They have radio communications. They could drop big old JDAMs on us and we would have to constantly be moving. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't stay in the same spot for a day. And you'd never even see the jet to drop the bomb on you because he's, you know, freaking 15,000 feet, 15, feet up. Wow. I feel like the improvements in weapons themselves is also a deterrent of war, not just a nuclear bomb. 
but also the weapons that every country has in is a deterrent. The training that soldiers have nowadays is a deterrent. I honestly feel like war is going it is slowly becoming obsolete. Men on the ground that's going to go away. Wow. I mean you even have so much technology being pumped in to try to make the individual soldier much more effective. You have exoskeletons that they're actually experimenting with Aiden where Men are being placed into these exoskeleton legs, which will allow them to carry almost 400 pounds. Mm -hmm. And all of that load is carried on this exoskeleton and it doesn't even impact the soldier. That's crazy. But you think it's going to move away from that completely? So you think it's going to continue to change? Of course it's going to continue to change. Absolutely it's going to continue to change. Mm. Emmett, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was amazing to get your expertise there and um, just your experience with weapons and weapons have really come quite a long way and again whether you love them or you hate them there's an incredible amount of history there thank you so much Uh, thank you very much for having me on Aidan it's been an absolute pleasure this is the end of the podcast we hope you enjoyed your time if you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned, why don't you give us some of your money? Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 